Proverbs chapter 11. Let's pray and we'll go and get started. Lord, good to be here this morning to praise you, to learn of you, to have fellowship with each other, to grow in you. We pray that right now your Holy Spirit would lead, guide, and teach in all ways and all things and help us have ears to hear, Lord. Not to only hear it, but to apply it. Your name. Amen. A couple quick addendums there to the announcements. I liked how Miranda said that Jim told her to do it. Did you guys catch that? So, husbands, I want you to try that with your wives right now. Honey, you need to run. I just want you to throw that out there and see how that goes. So, um, I also just want to share, too, real quick. I know Renee mentioned the small group studies there. Uh, hey, prayerfully consider getting involved with those. We really have seen a lot of fruit over that for the last few years. Some really neat opportunities there to really grow. Like I said, doing Titus there, Milton Center, uh, Deschler. Ottawa, um, Holgate, I think we got four of them going on. And then Monday nights out here at church is a time of uh, prayer, communion, and, and worship. I uh, just encourage you to get involved with those small groups. What a blessing there. And one more quick thing about the Operation Christmas Child. Wonderful group. You know, the church covers the shipping for that. And we always say every time we do it that there is this idea of you get a chance to bless a child with Christmas. But most important, you get a chance to bless them with the gospel message. And I shared with you last time that Elias put a little note in his box that he sent out, and the gal actually contacted him. And so they have this little communication going on now, and she's asking for prayer for this, for that. She lives over in Africa. And then just about a month ago, um, she was asking for prayer for her father. Then her father started contacting Elias. And so it's just neat to see these relationships where across the continent through a shoebox, there's this relationship where you can text each other now with technology and say, hey, we're praying for this. It's a real neat opportunity just to represent the Lord. So a lot of neat fruit comes out of that. And I just encourage you to prayerfully consider getting involved. What a blessing it is to come out for one of those packing days or just to provide a shoebox there. The church takes care of the shipping. You will be blessed and you'll get a chance to bless other people as well. All righty, Proverbs chapter 11. Um, if you weren't with us last week, the way we're kind of teaching through Proverbs is this. Is this understanding that as we're now into these Proverbs. Remember, a Proverbs a simple but profound way to tell the truth. So it's a simple truth, but yet it's a profound statement. As you read through these, you stop and you realize there's not a lot of depth to it, but as you chew on it, it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. That's what a proverb is. And if you remember correctly, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, we've laid the groundwork on what wisdom is. Wisdom. Wisdom is God's way of thinking. Then you take knowledge and understanding, which is God's way of doing it and God's way of applying it. You put it all together and you're walking in wisdom. Through the Holy Spirit, Solomon has spent the first nine chapters laying the groundwork of what wisdom is. So that way when you get to chapter 10, you have these little proverbs, these little nuggets, simple but profound at the same time that apply to your daily life. As we've mentioned many times before, Proverbs is not deep on theology, it's not deep on end times. What it's deep on is practical, daily, godly living is what we need in this world today. So as you go through this book, you're going to see a little nugget and say, that's what I needed to hear. To set an example of this, Proverbs 11, verse 27, we kind of jump around in the chapter because they go in a very unique set. And so therefore, we're going to be in chapter 11, but we're going to be jumping around in chapter 11. Take a look at 27. He who earnestly seeks good finds favor. But trouble will come to him who seeks evil. You have to remember, this is considered a book of poetry. Now, when you think of poetry, you think of words that rhyme. That's what I think of. Hebrew poetry is different. One of the facts of Hebrew poetry is they like to present two different truths that contradict each other to kind of show a point. So if you take a look at 27, you want to earnestly seek good, you find favor. The opposite, trouble comes to those who seek evil. That's a theme of Proverbs, where you see it kind of divided up. The idea of earnestly seeking good... 
trouble if you seek evil. That is Hebrew poetry right there. So we will start with that being our groundwork verse for chapter 11. He who earnestly seeks good finds favor. Trouble will come to him who seeks evil. Simple point right there. Are you diligently, earnestly seeking good? I mean, is that really your life focus? We are looking to grow and go deeper in a walk in relationship with Christ. That's the purpose of church. I think sometimes we forget what the purpose of church is. We have combined this idea that church is here to entertain you, to excite you, to give you opportunities, and to be fun. And we're going to be the coolest, hippest, fun church. The purpose of church is to equip you to go out there and see souls get saved. So the way I look at church is this is a staff meeting here on Sunday morning. And so you've come together because I hope you have a desire to see souls get saved and to grow deeper in your marriage and your walk and relationship with Christ. So the first point is, verse 27, is do you earnestly, diligently seek that? That's effort, folks. It's effort. When we were down in Mexico, Richard filled in for me one Sunday, and he made this point, and I just keep chewing on this point again and again. He said in the message, he says, what will you ever get good at by just doing it one hour a week? And he was talking about the idea of church. Now, let's not equate church with salvation. We obviously love to see you here on Sunday mornings, but there's also six other days of the week to grow and go deeper in your walk with Christ. So what matters is this, is are you earnestly, diligently seeking it? If your time with God, your time with worship, your time in the Word, your time with the body of Christ is one hour on Sunday, there's not going to be a lot of depth. Once again, as Richard said, what would you become good at doing one hour a week? And for many people, it's not even one hour a week. Maybe it's two hours a week. I mean, imagine I came up to you and said, I want to be the world's greatest piano player. And I'm going to work so hard, I'm going to spend one hour a month. One hour a month. And I will become the world's greatest. No! Earnestly, diligently, the amount of time, effort, and practice that would take. It's the same thing with Christianity. You want to grow and go deeper? Jesus did all the foundational work for you on the cross. It is finished. But now you decide how deep you want to go in him. And that's what Proverbs is teaching us here. It's this earnest desire to want to grow and go deeper. Remember, we live in a farming community. Galatians chapter 5. What you sow is what you're going to reap. We sowed corn in May. We're now reaping it. We sowed beans. We're now reaping it. Same thing happens spiritually. If I sow laziness, I will reap laziness. If I sow lukewarmness, I will reap lukewarmness. If I sow bitterness, I will reap bitterness. I want us to earnestly desire, seek good, to go deeper in all things with the Lord in the relationship with Christ. So that is our foundation of chapter 11. Now let's go get some practical things. First one you're going to see is the idea of integrity. Verse 1, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. We don't think about that a lot today. If you go into the grocery store and you buy a packaging and it says one pound, you just assume it's one pound. 2,000 years ago, The idea of the weights, scales, not even 2,000 years ago, hundreds of years ago, the idea of weights and scales was everything. And if you had dishonest scales, you were trying to cheat. If you cheat a few ounces every single time, that sure builds up over time. So the idea of dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord. He wants us to have integrity. He wants us to have truth. Here's a cute little story, and you'll kind of catch on halfway through what's going to happen, but I like this. There was a farmer who sold a pound of butter to the baker. One day, the baker decided to weigh the butter to see if he was getting a pound, and he found out that he was not. This angered him, and he took the farmer to court. The judge asked the farmer if he was using any measure. The farmer replied, Your Honor, I'm a primitive man. I don't have a proper measure, but I do have a scale. The judge asked, Well, then how do you weigh the butter? The farmer replied, Your Honor, since long before the baker started buying butter from me, I have been buying a pound of bread from him. 
Every day when the baker brings the bread, I put it on the scale and I give him the same weight in butter. If anyone is to be blamed, it is the baker. And there's the idea there. Now, you don't have to worry about dishonest scales today, but I think there is some reference here to our work ethic and how we do and what we look like at work. Dishonest scales are an abomination. Please remember what it says in Colossians. You work as if working for the Lord, not for man. You've got to keep that in the back of your mind. You may have the world's worst boss. You may have the world's worst company, but you are there to represent Jesus Christ in every interaction you have. And what happens a lot of times as Christians, we go into the workforce and we act just like the world at work. We complain like they do. We gripe like they do. We mumble like they do. And then when God opens a door to represent the light of Christianity, how are we any different? Dishonest scales are an abomination. When you are at work, represent the Lord and all you do and all you say with that type of work ethic because you are working for the Lord, not for man. The integrity, which takes us right to verse 3. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Integrity will guide you. Integrity is doing the right thing when no one else knows. If you're in a large group, there's a little bit of the peer pressure to do the right thing. It's easy to say the right things of Christianity when you're in a group and everybody else is a Christian. What happens when no one else is around? And you can kind of shirk your responsibilities a little bit. Integrity says, no, that still guides me because the Lord sees what I'm doing and no one else does. And I work as if working for the Lord, not for man. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity and the unfaithful will destroy them. Because the goal is never about money. Look at verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Righteousness delivers from death. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Righteousness delivers from death. There's been many times over the years I've been at the final moments of someone's life, and no one is ever talking about money at that time. No one has ever cared about how many hours they had worked or what they've collected over the years. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Righteousness delivers from death. We have to define righteousness at this point. It was used 13 times last week in chapter 10. It's used 8 times here this week. God wants us to know righteousness. Righteousness just means being right. So how am I made right? Please remember the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, Jesus, that knew no sin became sin for us, so that way we might become the righteousness of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, I am a sinful man standing in front of you, but when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So therefore, I am righteous in Christ, not by what I have done. Let's make that clear. But by through what God has done for me through Christ Jesus. There's another way to use righteousness in the Bible. Now that I'm saved and I am made righteous, made right, I now go do righteous works. So therefore, I go do works that are right. We got this little saying we use at the Irvin house. When the boys come to me and there's a dispute, a disagreement over something, I just simply say, hey, do the right thing. If you just always do the right thing, you're going to be okay in life. Righteousness delivers from death. Imagine standing before God at the end. You get to bring one of two things. You either get to bring your riches or your righteousness. I'm telling you, riches profit nothing in the day of wrath. No amount of money, possessions, works, whatever will save you from the fires of hell other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness delivers from death. Let that sink in. And so since we believe that and we know that, that changes how we live. It's not about collecting more toys. It's not about getting more money. It's about none of that. It's about eternity. Look at verse 7. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. The hope of the unjust perishes. We will die. Wickedness will lead us to perish. 
We have to stand before God then and the hope of the unjust perishes. Our riches, nothing else will help. Please remember Luke chapter 12. We mentioned that a lot recently. The rich man that kept building himself more and more barns. And what happens as he's building more and more barns, he says, soul, be at ease. And we've talked about this American mentality. Work hard, put a lot of hours in to retire as quick as you can so you can just go enjoy life. That's not a biblical concept. And so this man has built up his little kingdom, built up his little barns, and then the Bible says, fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. The riches mean absolutely nothing. What matters most is the righteousness of God. Our goal should always be righteousness. Verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Righteousness will direct you. Do the right thing. Be blameless. Blamelessness means nothing attaches to you. I call it Teflon Christianity. People want to say something bad about you, they can't. Because there's nothing attaches to you because you're blameless. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but you have such a walk and a witness for the Lord. Think of blameless people in the Bible. Daniel was blameless. They had to create lies to get him to go into the lion's den. Joseph was blameless. They had to have lies for him to go into prison. Paul was blameless. They made up lies about him. Jesus, they made up lies about him. They were all blameless people. They had no accusation to stick against them, so they had to resort to lies. And what happens in those situations, the Daniel and the lion's in is a great example. The people that got Daniel in there, even though he was blameless, they're the ones that are thrown in later. Look at the end of verse 5. The wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Keep this idea of righteousness going. Verse 6. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the unfaithful will be caught by their lust. The, upright, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them. Now, you may stop and say, okay, you just use the example of Daniel, the lion's den, Joseph, prison. They weren't delivered, but they were. I know if I'm blameless, if I'm righteous, and I'm walking in the righteousness of Christ, when something in this world happens that knocks me down, I have to stop and say, Lord, you're using this for your glory. You're using this for a bigger purpose, and I need to trust the sovereignty of God because you will deliver me. And sometimes the way we're delivered is through physical death. We always look at physical death as some type of loss. That's the greatest victory you could ever have. Your home in eternity in heaven. Verse 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. I use the example once again of Daniel and the lion's den. The men that got Daniel thrown in there are the ones that are thrown in there at the end and are killed and destroyed. Which then takes us to that idea of trouble. Look at verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble and it comes to the wicked instead. Keep that mindset of trouble. Goes to 29, same chapter. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. And the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. Guys, if we walk in wickedness, we bring trouble into our lives. It's not worth it. When we choose to get out of God's will for our life, we bring trouble to our house. And we inherit the wind. What does it mean to inherit the wind? You can go a couple different ways with this. Wind is destructive. You think of the idea of storms and the wind that destroys. Wind also is nothing you can grasp. You can nothing hold. It's fleeting. When you walk in wickedness, you bring trouble to your house. It is never worth it. You guys all know somebody who instead of walking in the righteousness of the Lord on his will, they walked in the trouble and wickedness came to their house. And the problems that are there. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. We need to remember we want to walk in what is right and what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So now through the rest of the chapter here, it's going to kind of explain to us some topics on what is the right thing to do. And the first one you're going to see is the idea of the mouth. Because remember, this is an ongoing theme in Proverbs in the Bible. A mature believer watches what they say. 
A mature believer watches what they say. Maturity, you watch what you say. You ask yourself, should I even say it? And you ask yourself, when should I say it? Maturity is watching what you say, when you say it, and even if you should say it at all. Please remember that. Our words determine how we are mature in the Lord. James 3 makes it clear that the tongue, even though it's a small little part of our body, is so absolutely destructive. And when you listen to somebody and you listen to their words, you get a glimpse into their heart of what's important to them and what do they think about. That's why our words are so utterly revealing. Take a look at verse 9. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. The hypocrite destroys his neighbor. Do you know people are just destroying people with their words on a regular basis? They use their words as a weapon, and they're destroying neighbors. Not only destroying neighbors, look at verse 11. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, but is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. The mouth also destroys nations and cities. If you don't believe that, look at the world we live in today, how our words are just destroying each other. Maturity, knowing what you should say, when you should say it, and even if it's to say it at all. Please remember these biblical truths here about talking to somebody. Before you talk to anybody, you pray first. You pray. Second, you talk to them in love. Then you talk to them in truth. And you talk to that person alone with the goal of encouraging, not discouraging, with the goal of equipping and not whipping. Remember that. That will change every conversation if you just follow those biblical rules. Pray before you speak. Speak love. Speak truth to that person alone. With the goal of encouraging, not discouraging. With the goal of equipping and not whipping. Because what happens when you don't? Look at verse 13. A talebearer reveals secrets. A gossip reveals secrets. But he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Boy, gossip. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote. He says, a lie will be halfway around the world while truth is still getting its shoes on. There's a lot of truth to that. We like the idea of gossip. We do. You know, in the 20 plus years I've been teaching, I tell you this, it's amazing how I see Christians getting worked up about certain things. And we should get worked up about certain things. We should always stand for life. We should always stand for what marriage is. We should stand for truth. Those things are true. But what I've seen over the years that I've been teaching is this. You know what's really hurting the church? It's gossip. That's what it is. It's amazing how as Christians we will march and take banners up for life and we will march and take banners up for marriage, but yet we don't fight gossip. Gossip is more destructive than anything else I've ever seen. We get together and we just talk and talk and talk. And it's kind of fascinating because gossip is the easiest sin that I know of to defeat. If you don't want to gossip, don't open your mouth and you don't gossip. How easy is that sin to defeat? You don't want to be on the receiving end of gossip. Don't listen. It is not a difficult sin to defeat. Take a look at me. Go to Proverbs 26, please. Proverbs 26. Take a look here at Proverbs 26, verse 20. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no talebearer, strife ceases. Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. For the sin of gossip to happen, it has to have two willing participants. One to speak it and one to listen to it. So if we can't stop people from speaking gossip, we can still end gossip by everybody saying, I'm not willing to listen to it. So why do we listen to it? 
Because Proverbs also says gossip is like a tasty little treat. You just want one more little nugget. I tell you, guys, if you pray first, speak truth, speak love to that person alone with the goal of encouraging, not discouraging, with the goal of equipping and not whipping, gossip will just stop. We live in a society today where we feel like our opinion is so vitally important. We need to put it at the bottom of every article we read. We need to post it to Facebook. We need to put it out there. And everybody needs to know what we think. No. No. Remember our little phrase we like to use over here, prayed over opinions. If you've got an opinion you prayed over and you can back it up with scripture, by golly, we want to hear it. If you don't, just keep it to yourself. Gossip can be stopped by people not saying it and by people not listening to it. Now, you would think that would be pretty easy to say, I'm not going to listen to gossip. But the problem is we really spiritualize gossip. I'll have people come up to me over the years and say, hey, so-and-so came over to my house. Oh, okay. Yeah, they just had a lot of stuff going on. Just a lot of issues in life, some issues with the church and stuff like that. And they just want to kind of unload. And they kind of talked to me. It was probably about an hour or so they were over. Just really got a lot of things off their chest. Oh, okay. Well, anything in particular? No, nothing I should really, really talk about. But just they, I could tell it was really good for them. So they gossip for an hour. No, no, it's not. But that's what it is. Because they needed to unload about everybody else that's causing problems or situations or problems, whatever. And what happened is we thought we were spiritual by listening to it. And what we're really doing is adding one more log to the fire every single time. Now, you may disagree with that, but that's really the truth. We disguise this gossip as just having a listening ear. Well, did you tell them to stop? Because it was, no, I, I knew they just needed to get off their chest. They needed to sin. Now, when you run into someone who's starting to gossip, you just stop them. You just stop and say, I need to stop you right there. Let's just do two things right now. Number one, let's pray for that person you're talking about. And number two, how about I can't encourage you enough, just go talk to them alone. Right there, take the wood out. If I come to you and say, I want you to start a fire and I give you a match, nothing else, your fire really can't do much. But if I provide for you the wood, the paper, and the gasoline, and the match, I'm causing problems. I just want to encourage you. Watch what you say. Number two, watch what you listen to and give an ear to. Because by giving an ear to it, you're playing an active participant in it as well. Stop the person in love, pray for the person they're talking about with them, and then encourage them to go talk to that person one-on-one. That's the biblical way to handle it. And if as a body of Christ we would always do that, gossip would stop. But we like to hear We like to listen. We like to talk. Really pray through that. Watch what type of listener you are. Watch what type of talker you are. Because the mouth will get us into trouble. Maturity is watching what we say. So it comes to the point that I'm just not going to talk to anybody. Well, the problem is verse 14. Where there's no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitudes of counselors, there is safety. God has designed us to be the body of Christ. To encourage one another in wisdom and Bible, etc. So you are called to go to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I encourage you, sisters go to sisters, brothers go to brothers. And say, hey, I have this situation. Pray for me. And give them scripture to help them. Give them godly wisdom and counsel. You don't need all the details. What does the Bible say to do? There's wisdom in the counsel of many. Wonderful passage right there. I can't stress to you enough, though. Stick with spirit-led, Bible-believing wisdom. Spirit-led, Bible-based wisdom. It's not talking to Fred at work. People tell me all the time. They'll have a situation and they'll come to me and say, Hey, Pastor, what do you think? Okay, well, the Bible says this. The verses say this. And I can, they're listening. They're like, well, I was talking to Fred at work. And Fred thinks I should do this. Well, who's Fred? 
Well, Fred's this guy at work. Is Fred praying over this, fasting over this, and seeking the Lord over this? No, Fred's just talking from years of experience in eight marriages. Well, maybe Fred's not the guy for us to listen to, okay? Because what happens, I've noticed, is this. When somebody wants to grow and go deeper, the Lord puts a spirit-filled person in their life to encourage them. The enemy puts somebody else in their life. Got to be careful of where you gain counsel and wisdom from. Spirit-led, Bible-based. Which probably takes a lot of the way a lot of the stuff you read online. Just throwing that out there a little bit there, too. So integrity is diligently, earnestly seeking the Lord, watching what we say with our mouth. What's the next one here? Verse 15. Our finances. He was surety for a stranger will suffer, but once one who hates being surety is secure. Surety is a kind of a fancy word right there. We've talked about this a lot in Proverbs 6. Time doesn't allow us to go back. I encourage you to read the beginning of Proverbs 6. Surety means you're taking other people's debts on you. I will take legal responsibility for their debts. The Bible says stay away from that. There is danger in that. Don't get involved with that. So then the idea is, well, then I'm just going to hold on to my money. Verse 16, a gracious woman retains honor, but ruthless men retain riches. So this idea, then I'll just keep all my money. Verse 16 says you're being ruthless then. That's not a compliment. Where God says if you keep it, you're being ruthless. So what am I supposed to do with my money then? 24, there is one who scatters yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withhold grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. I tell you, give it away. Give it away in the name of Jesus Christ to further the gospel. We've made these points so many times, just bear with me. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If God is generous to you, he's giving you more so you can be generous to others. That's the goal. Remember, when money comes in, it's not to raise your standard of living, it's to raise your standard of giving. It's giving you more opportunities to go represent Jesus Christ. This does not make sense to the world. Please remember, I went to college, my degree in college is in finance. So when I read these verses, this is the worst investing advice I've ever seen in my life. This makes no sense. Verse 24, there is one who scatters yet increases more. There's one who withholds more than is right but leads to poverty. See, but i got to go with God's economy, not with man's economy. And I can tell you from personal experience, these passages are true. You stop and you say, Lord, it's not mine, it's yours. Who can I bless in the name of Jesus? And God says, I will just keep giving you more. Not for you to buy more toys, not for you to get more stuff, so therefore you can go bless more people in the name of Jesus. And it just amazes me when I do financial counseling sometimes with people that those people that hold on to everything... It leads to poverty, verse 24. There's truth to that. I think it's in the book of Micah, if I remember correctly. There's a passage about how you come home from work and you have your money bags. But by the time you get home, you have no money because there's holes in your money bag. And it disappears by the time you get home. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, you know, I get paid and by the time I pay my bills, there's nothing. Where did it all go? This is this crazy concept. If you put God first in your finances, he just keeps blessing you with more and more and more. You know, when Dawn and I, uh, we get paid, we write from the first of the month, we you know, tithe right off what the Lord has given us, then we have other financial, spiritual responsibilities that we feel led to do, so we do that. So we take care of that for, before anything else. And then we have our monthly bills, and at the end of the month, we usually get together, we have a meeting, and I know that sounds weird, but we do. We plan a meeting. There's seven children, so we have to plan a meeting. And we look at how much is in checking, we look how much is in savings, we look at the bills that are coming, and we stop and say, Lord, this is your money, what do you want us to do with it? 
How do you want us to use it for you and your glory? And I tell you, these verses are so true. It's not ours. It's the Lord's. Not about buying more toys. Not about buying more things. Lord, we want to bless people in the name of Jesus. And God leads and guides. Take a look at 25. He who waters will also be watered himself. 26 is interesting. The people will curse him who withholds grain. Blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Well, what does that mean? If you're withholding grain, you're trying to manipulate the market a little bit. I have it. I'm going to let the prices go up because I'm very selfishly saying it's all about me and my finances. And so, therefore, I want the best for me. No. What furthers the kingdom? I go back to Luke 12 again. The man who had the money bought himself everything he wanted, and he says, be at ease. And what did the Lord say? Fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Keep thinking about eternity and all that you do and all that you say. Look at verse 17. The merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. If I'm thinking about eternity, if I'm watching my mouth, if I'm watching my finances, and I'm being earnestly, diligently seeking the Lord, verse 17, I'm doing good for my soul. It just goes better. But if not, I'm troubling my own flesh. And let's kind of break this down a little bit. Look at 18. The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. As righteousness leads to life, so is he who pursues, excuse me, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. There are there those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. And 23, the desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Remember I told you about that idea of Hebrew poetry. It presents two thoughts here. That's exactly what's happening. Go back to 17. We have the soul and we have the flesh. The soul we want to do good with. The flesh we create trouble with. Okay. So therefore, the rest of these verses show us. Look at 18. What does the flesh get? Wickedness gets deceptive works, but the soul, righteousness, gets a reward. 19, the soul, righteousness, leads to life, but evil gets death. 20, a perverse heart is an abomination, but a blameless heart is the delight of the Lord. 23, the righteous desire good, but the wicked get wrath. Now just make a little column of that. Righteousness brings good. Righteousness brings reward. Righteousness brings life. Blameless brings delight. Or, wickedness brings wrath, deceptive brings wrath, evil brings evilness, and crookedness brings an abomination. There's really not a comparison. So then you have to stop and decide, what am I going to live for, the soul or the flesh? If you live for the flesh, you'll never win. I'm just going to tell you that right now. There will always be more toys to get, more things to do, more money to spend, more pride to collect. It never works. But if you look at eternity and you look at the soul, all of a sudden you realize that's the whole goal is eternity. Look at 30 and 31 to close up with. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He who wins souls is wise. We have a lot of boys in our house. There's a lot of testosterone. There's a lot of competitive spirit. They will race to see who gets to brush their teeth first. There's just this idea of everything. One of the things you always try to remind the boys, only thing that matters is winning souls. Nothing else matters. So therefore, if you're involved in any sport, yes, you want to go out and you want to work as if working for the Lord, play as if playing for the Lord, but please remember how absolutely, utterly temporary that is. Only thing that matters is eternity is souls. If you want to go do good in school, then by golly, do school because you work as if working for the Lord. But it is all temporary because the only thing that matters is winning souls. If you can get that mindset now, it will change your life. 
Because all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how many toys you have. It doesn't matter how much stuff you have. It doesn't matter how much pride you get. It doesn't matter of anything. The only thing that matters is every single person you talk to is either going to heaven or hell for all of eternity. And if we would understand that winning souls is wise, all of a sudden we're seeing it through the eyes of Jesus. Just think about how much we focus on in this world. We pray that this goes well and this goes well and this goes well. What would happen if we'd pray, no, Lord, give me an opportunity to represent you to these people and not worrying about upgrading my life. It's about souls. Because look at 31. If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? So if the righteous are rewarded on this earth, how much more will the ungodly sinner be judged? I know how much my God loves me. And if my God loves me that much... I also know how much he hates sin. And if he hates sin that much, that's the eternity of hell. And I think what happens is this. A lot of us don't stop and think about winning souls. We're too busy. There's too much activity going on to think about eternity. I got a devotional I've been reading here. And I just want to read to you what he said about activity. Because I want you to leave this teaching today thinking about eternity, saying, what, what really matters? It says this. It says, in our Lord's life, there was none of the pressure and the rushing of tremendous activity that we regard so highly today. So when Jesus lived, there was no rushing, no activity. And the disciples to be like his master. So I'm supposed to be like Jesus and all I do. Can you imagine Jesus rushing? Can you imagine Jesus under pressure? Like you'd go rewind the clock 2,000 years ago. And you meet Jesus. Jesus, how's it going today? Oh my goodness, it is so crazy. You should see my calendar. I have something going on every single evening. I got to get Peter over here. I got to get John over here. Then I got to go pick up Luke over here. I'm just, it is crazy. No. Jesus would never, ever. And if we're supposed to be like the master, why are we having a pressure and rushing of tremendous activity? You have no idea where or how God is going to engineer your future circumstances. You don't know what the future is going to hold. And no knowledge of what stress and strain is going to be placed on you either at home or abroad. You don't know what's going to stress you out today or tomorrow. And if you waste your time in overactivity, instead of being immersed in the great fundamental truths of God's redemption, then you will snap when the stress and strain do come. If you constantly are going, 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 chasing the things of this world or being involved in the things of this world, you will snap when the stress and strain do come. But if this time of soaking before God is being spent and getting rooted and grounded in Him, which may appear to be impractical then you will remain true to him whatever happens. This was written by Oswald Chambers, who died over 100 years ago. So over 100 years ago, 100 years ago, he's saying there's too much activity, too much stuff going on. People are running around all over the place, overactivity. That's before internet, that's before cell phones, that's before texting, that's before all of this. We live in a world today where we fill every moment with something. Then how are we ever supposed to be still and know that he is God? How are we ever supposed to get out into the wilderness and pray like Christ did? I believe it was Oswald Chambers that said as well, too. I can't remember. He says, the difficulty is not learning what to say yes to. The difficulty is learning what to say no to. I encourage you this week. Learn to say no to activity. Be still and know that he is the Lord. Be prayed up. Be ready. You don't have to fill yourself. Don't chase what everybody else is chasing. Be still and know it's God. I understand, just as he said, that is impractical. That's not the way the world works. We pride ourselves on busyness and activity and look at everything we're doing. God prides on sitting at the feet of Jesus. I want to encourage you with that. I just want to share one quick story about winning souls and just 
being available and being ready here. I, this had happened at Walmart a while ago. I was in the checkout line getting ready to go, and every time I get to the checkout line, I always kind of look at it as a little mission field. You know, Lord, who would I get a chance to talk to? And most of the time, I'm the one trying to start up conversations with people and see where God takes it. And every now and then, something like this happens. So I'm placing myself on the conveyor belt, getting ready. The woman in front of me looks at me. She starts up the conversation, and she just wants to complain. How slow the checkout line is going, how slow the cashier is, and just, just complain. And you know what? God loves weird people. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And she was a unique little bird. And I said, okay, Lord, so this is the unique bird that we get to talk to because God loves unique people as well. And so she starts off complaining. So I stop and I say, hey, you know what? In the whole scheme of heaven and hell, none of this really matters, does it? Okay. Doesn't really bite, and that's okay. Because I got a, a couple other fishing hooks in my box. So I'll just keep casting out lines there. So then it turns to the floods that were happening. And she goes, I guess we should be grateful because there's people that don't even have a Walmart that's open, etc. And I said, yeah, that's right. I said, the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. I said, isn't it amazing that we get up and every morning is the mercy of God? Okay, she didn't bite at that lore either. Okay, so now we move on. The next thing. So now she just brings up end times. Uh, uh, Iran. She goes, have you noticed? Have you seen what Iran's doing? And I'm running out of lures at this point now. You know, I'm kind of saying, okay, so I said Iran. So I just threw it out there. I said, yeah. I said, Iran. I said, that's end times prophecy right there. They're going to invade Israel from the south. I'm just, you know, that's, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen there. She stopped. That got her attention. She goes, they are? I said, yeah, the Bible says that uh, there's going to be a coalition of Muslims. They're going to come up from the south. Russia's going to come down from the north. Battle of Gog and Magog. God takes them out, et cetera. And she's actually listening at this point. She goes, and she goes, Israel's going to win, aren't they? I said, Israel's going to win. She goes, Israel always wins. I said, Israel always wins. And I'm not making this up. She looks at me. She goes, we should all marry a Jew. That's what she says. So if she goes, we should just all marry a Jew. I said, I love the Jews. That's what I said. So if, if you're listening to this online and you think I'm mocking the Jews, I love Israel. I pray for Israel. I love it. That's, she goes, we should all. And that was the end of the conversation. She said, we should all marry a Jew. And I said, I love the Jews. Then she left. So I have no idea if any fruit came out of that in any way whatsoever. But if you run into a woman at Walmart that wants you to marry a Jew, that's probably the woman I spoke to. Seeds have been planted. Go out there and win souls, people. Um, Go out there and realize it's not the overactivity that will destroy you. Check your calendar. Learn what to say no to. Sit at the feet of Jesus and go for eternity. That is all that matters. That is all that matters. So worship team's got a special here to close, a real fun one there. Good wording there. Um, good words in this song. I hope it blesses you. Hey, prayerfully consider getting involved with those small groups. Starting up, two of them start up Sunday, one Monday. I think the next two next Thursday. Geographical areas come out, be blessed. The vision from this comes from where Paul said in Acts 20 that he went from house to house preaching there. It's a unique type of teaching. It's a unique time to get together, and it's a real neat blessing because you get to build relationships and accountability with people. And I also encourage you to, like I said, that Monday one, we're not doing a teaching out here. Uh, We're going to be doing a time of prayer, uh, communion, and worship. And feel free to come on on that as well. So we'll give it over to the worship team and let you go.